Well, this morning we are going to return to our study of the book of Romans, and we have actually been studying the book of Romans, but we just have uh, may not have felt that way because we were doing more of a topical series on biblical hospitality, but it was uh, our launching point was the last verse that we studied together uh, four weeks ago, Romans chapter 12, verse 13, how we are to be practicing hospitality. And I trust that that series was helpful for you as it was for me to really think more deeply and really differently about hospitality than I've ever thought before. And it's been encouraging just to uh, see some of the application that uh, you're making uh, to that series. And uh, people have been coming up and telling me, hey, last Sunday we invited these people over. And uh, hey, we've set aside uh, one night a week that we're going to invite people into our homes. And it's just very encouraging. So thank you for not just being hearers of the word who deceive themselves, delude themselves, but uh, being doers of the word the way the Lord intends. So we're going to pick up where we left off here in Romans chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning. And so let me just read our text and pray, and then we'll get into it. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, just reading these verses, um, we can't help but think about all that we've been seeing on the news and um, what's going on in our country right now. And Lord, this is not what's happening. Um, in fact, the exact opposite is happening. And so uh, we just thank you for uh, your sweet providence in our exposition of this book to bring us to this text today where uh, there is much here for us to consider and to apply. And I ask that you would give us uh, humility as we grapple with what your word says and uh, teachability and uh, that, Lord, we would be willing to change where we need to change and uh, ultimately for the purpose of becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, what has transpired in our country over the last few years, or last few weeks, I should say, is, is truly tragic and should cause all of us to lament. Race riots are nothing new, but this latest wave of protests in the wake of a, of a pandemic and in the midst of an economic crisis seems to have raised the issue of racial justice to a whole new level. And without taking sides in regards to police officers and African Americans or sharing personal opinions about who's right and who's wrong and whose lives really matter, the present racial tension in our country has simply exposed the depravity that's in all of our hearts. And while the outrage is understandable, the resulting mayhem is unjustifiable. In fact, it's unbiblical. Anger, hatred, animosity, hostility, pride, violence, revenge, and treating others like our enemies are all sinful responses to wrongs done to us. And I'm not denying that there have been some people who have been severely wronged because they have. 
But this is typically how we respond when we're treated harshly or unjustly. Our natural instinct is to retaliate, to hit back, to get even, to give others a taste of their own medicine. And frankly, we enjoy every minute of payback, don't we? There's something sweet about seeing someone suffer like they made you suffer. I'll be honest, one of my favorite stories is The Count of Monte Cristo. And it's a brilliant novel and turned into a movie. And I've often asked myself as I'm watching that and so engaged and enjoying it so much, going, what is it that I'm actually enjoying about this? This whole story, the theme of this whole story is revenge. And how good that guy was in getting back at his enemy and just planned everything out so perfectly to exact revenge. Well, vengeance has no place in the life of anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are to respond to unjust suffering and brutal treatment in the same way our Lord and Savior did. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter is addressing slaves, those uh, referred to as servants here. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he knew that some of the believers that he was writing to who would receive this letter, who would hear this letter, were, were in the position of being slaves. They had masters. And this is what he said, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And notice what he says in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you to follow in his steps. Example, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So here Peter exhorted these suffering believers who were being persecuted um, in all sorts of ways because of their commitment to Christ. And so Peter exhorted them to follow the example that Jesus set when he was unfairly tried and brutally beaten and wrongfully murdered by not retaliating but entrusting themselves to God, the righteous judge who promises to right all wrongs in this life or in the life to come. Again, this is not our natural response. In fact, this is what we would call a supernatural response. In other words, the only Ones who can do this and respond this way are those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way we're capable of responding this way. And so, here in Romans 12, the gospel that Paul explained in the first 12 chapters of this letter to the believers in Rome has the power to transform our lives in such a way and enable us to not retaliate in sinful ways when we're sinned against by others. As living and holy sacrifices, we're called by God to live countercultural lives and relate to the actions and emotions of others in a totally and radically different way than the rest of the world does. And consequently, God may use our Christ-like reaction or response to the goings-on in the world to win others to Christ. And while 
there seems to be in this text references to potentially how we relate to believers, fellow believers. Um, it, it seems that the theme is more how we relate to unbelievers and particularly those who would qualify as our enemies. That's really the bookend of this section. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so it seems that what Paul has in mind here are those who, who are in the category of an enemy. And so what is Paul doing here? He's, I think he's laying out a strategy to potentially win over our enemies to Christ. And there's 10 strategies, if you will, for turning enemies into not just our friends, but turning God's enemies into followers of Christ. And I hope you've already sensed that this passage is extremely relevant in light of the racial division in our country right now and the, where the battle lines have been drawn and Listen, whatever color your skin is, uh, whoever you are, whether you're a cop or a civilian, whichever side of the issues you fall on, these verses practically apply to all of us. They go both ways. And so let's look at these 10 strategies to turn enemies into friends. Number one, bless your enemy. Bless your enemy. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. This is a line straight out of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, or some say uh, it was a second sermon as well, a sermon on the plain, same sermon but just a different location. So Luke chapter 6, this is Luke's record of this principle of loving your enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, but I say to you who hear... This is Jesus, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And so when it comes to our enemies, Jesus commanded us to speak well to them and to speak well of them to others. But even more importantly, he actually told us to pray for them, and you ready for this? And ask God to bless them. And Perhaps grant them forgiveness. That was the example of Jesus on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, you remember Jesus said, Father, what? Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That applies right now. I think there's a whole lot of people out there that don't know what they're doing. And so, Father, forgive them. They're, what they're doing, they're doing in ignorance. That's what was happening at the foot of the cross. There was ignorance, all a part of that process, driving that process. Father, forgive them for they don't, they don't know what they're doing. And then Stephen is another good example. In Acts chapter seven, as he was being stoned to death, he called out to the Lord and said, Lord, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. So if Stephen and Jesus could pray for those who were stoning them and crucifying them, then surely we can pray for those who may be slandering us or criticizing us. Besides, the hurtful words of our enemies often provides helpful insights into our own lives, and as painful as it may be, we can grow through the attacks of our critics. And so we need to, first of all, bless our enemies. Number two, we need to identify with our enemies. We need to identify with our enemies. Verse 15, Paul says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So the basic idea here is that we are to empathize with others and have compassion on them based on what they're going through and how they're feeling. And of course, we, we know this is true of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 26, uh, Paul said, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Paul uh, advised the 
Corinthians in his second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so we have a responsibility to pass on that comfort that we've received from God through others to others. Galatians 6, 2, we're to bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ, which is what? To love our neighbor as ourself. Well, in this context, here in chapter 12 of Romans, I think this principle also applies to our enemies. We're to enter into the experiences and the emotions of our enemies. We are we need to feel their joy, and we need to feel their pain. We need to walk with them through the ups and downs of life. It's kind of like a sports fan, right, who, who rides the wave of emotion, whether their team wins, woohoo, or they lose. Oh, man, are you kidding me? These guys stink. It's a roller coaster, right? Any sports fan knows that, that experience. But what Paul is saying here is that we should be truly excited for their successes and and genuinely grieve for their sorrows. We should jump on the bandwagon and celebrate when they get promoted at work. And we should sit on the ash heap with them when they get diagnosed with cancer. Now this is obviously easier said than done. In fact, I think it's easier to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Rather than rejoice when things go well for others, we tend to resent them, don't we? We resent their blessings, their advantages, their accomplishments, their, their, their opportunities. You're like, hey, we just won an all expense. You're like, great. Why didn't we get that? Why didn't we win that? Why did they, right? you know, that's typically our sinful response. We get jealous, we compare, we compete. But I think the idea here is that we need to learn to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Think, think what it would be like to be them. I don't think it would be wrong for us to consider what it might be like to be a black person growing up in America. That, that might be a good thing for us to put ourselves in their shoes and try to view life from their vantage point to see the situation through their eyes and seek to understand them. I think that's part of what it means to identify with your enemy. Number three, be impartial to your enemy. Be impartial to your enemy. Notice in verse 16, he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Being of the same mind could could be a reference to unity and and harmony. Uh, In chapter 15, Verses five and six, he, Paul says the same things. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may be with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in light of the phrases that, that follow here, the, the do not be haughty in mind but associate with the lowly, do not be wise in your own estimation, it seems that Paul was exhorting us to look at everyone the same. So it wasn't just like, hey, be unified, uh, live in harmony with one another, um, be like-minded. That, that may not be the, the main emphasis here. It's more that we're to look at everyone the same. In other words, we shouldn't make distinctions between people or, or give certain people preferential treatment based on their race or their color or their educational background or their social class or their financial status. We looked uh, a couple weeks ago at the classic passage in the New Testament on uh, favoritism or partiality. That's James chapter 2. You can turn back there with me if you'd like. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. 
For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And James goes on to say, and to make his point, um, talking about there's no such partiality with God. In fact, Paul made that point back in Romans chapter 2, verse 11. He simply says, there is no partiality with God. In other words, everybody wants to make a distinction, at least in the church of Rome, is are, are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? And, and that was a big deal, whether you were a Jewish believer or, or, a, or a Gentile believer. And, and, and Paul says, hey, it doesn't matter to God. There's no partiality with God. It's not like he treats the Jews better than he treats the Gentiles or treats the Gentile, has a higher view of the Gentiles than he does the Jews. And so if there's no partiality with God, the tr- same should be true of us. We should treat everyone equally just like God does. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Obviously, this is talking about the body of Christ, right? Galatians 3, 28, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And again, these letters were being written to churches back in those days when there were people of all races sitting. Uh, it wasn't just Jews and Gentiles. People from all races were there, different colors, different languages. Some were masters, some were slaves, right? But they were all part of the body of Christ. And so Paul was careful to, to help them understand, hey, let's not be prejudiced. It's another word for partiality or making distinctions. And Paul's point here in Romans is if you look down on your fellow man with contempt or with conceit, you've not grasped God's plan of salvation, which is to, which is, is to include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? Revelation 5.9. There's gonna be a whole lot of people in heaven that don't talk like us, that don't look like us. You may be familiar with Peter's prejudice in Acts chapter 10. Um, Peter was a Jew and he was committed to reaching the Jews with the gospel and he went up uh, on the rooftop of the place he was staying and he had this vision of you know, all these unclean animals coming down, these non-kosher foods, right? And uh, God said, hey, kill them and eat them. And Peter's like, no way. I would never do that. Over my dead body, I ain't gonna eat that stuff. That's not kosher. That's not Jewish. That's, right? And what was he doing? He was helping to shatter uh, Peter's prejudice towards the Gentiles. Like, the, like Jesus wasn't just for the Jews. Jesus didn't just come save the Jews. He's not just the savior of the Jews. He's the savior of all men, including the Gentiles. And so he had to shatter Peter's prejudice before he could use him to lead Cornelius to Christ, who was the first Gentile convert. And when it finally dawned on him, the light bulb went on, and this is what Peter said in Acts 10, 34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. God is not prejudiced, and we shouldn't be prejudiced. So we should be impartial to our enemies. Number four, right on the heels of that, we need to be humble toward our enemy. We need to be humble toward our enemy. Paul goes on there in that same breath to say, do not, he says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now we know, if you've been a part of our study, that uh, Paul already wrote in this letter to the to the Roman believers, that there was a racial divide in the churches in Rome between 
Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And you pick that up uh, when you read like Romans chapter 2. Uh, verses 17 to 24, it seemed like the Jews had a chip on their shoulder that they were somehow better than the Gentiles because they had the law and they had Abraham and they had all these claims of being God's people and, and uh, Paul basically knocked them down the size and says, hey, you're no better than the Gentiles. And then in Romans 11, you kind of get the sense that the Gentiles were a little bit cocky thinking they were better than the Jews because the Jews, they, they had rejected the Messiah, they had killed Christ, and so now God had uh, shifted his focus from the Jews to the Gentiles, and so they were somehow better than the, the Jews, and so Paul actually says, hey, don't be arrogant. Um, don't be conceited, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. And then in chapter 12, he says in verse 3, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And so there was definitely some pride and some arrogance and some conceitedness going on in, this, in the churches that he was writing to. And so he was simply telling them not to think they were superior to one another based on their class, based on their heritage. Rather than being set, they'd be willing to associate with each important or act like they were better than the other group. So don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. He said this in chapter 11, verse 25. He used the same expression. He didn't want them to be wise in their own estimation. In other words, don't be cocky. Don't be arrogant. Don't act like a know-it-all which in this day and age is epitomized by that opinionated person who values his own ideas and, and viewpoints and refuses to consider the opinions and thoughts of others. Don't be that guy or that gal. We need to remember that we have nothing that we did not receive from the Lord and so we should place no confidence in our flesh and our wisdom and our strength, our talents, but we need to be humble toward everyone, but particularly our enemies. Number five, don't get even with your enemy. Don't get even with your enemy. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Again, this is the automatic reflex, right? The knee-jerk reaction of our sinful heart is to retaliate whenever we're wrong. When someone says or does something mean to us, we respond by saying and doing something mean to them. Right? Tit for tat. Back and forth we go. Now you're familiar, I'm sure, with the Old Testament law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That kind of sounds like tit for tat, right? You take my eye out, I take your eye out. You take uh, you know, my tooth out, I take your tooth out. Well, we need to understand that that was never intended to be applied to an individual seeking revenge. That was addressed to the governmental authority seeking justice. In other words, that was the, the, the way that, that God intended to maintain law and order, to make sure the punishment matched the crime. Which, by the way, we're going to get to in uh, chapter 13. I mean, talk about timely text for our season of life right now, talking about uh, the government and being subject to the government and uh, how defunding the police is an unbiblical concept, obviously. I hope you realize that, right? Um, and, uh, but it doesn't surprise us living in a society that is an anti-authority society. Let's just defund the authorities that God has placed over us, Right? Because then we can go, woohoo, do whatever we want and not have to deal with the, any authority over us. Stay tuned for that next week, right? Matthew chapter 5. Turn there real quick. This is the, again, the countercultural way of responding, the unnatural or supernatural way of responding. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. 
Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So don't get even with your enemy. Number six, do right by your enemy. Do right by your enemy. Notice the second part of verse 17. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. In other words, do what you know everyone considers good, noble, honorable, or right. Just do the right thing. And again, while we don't want to be people pleasers, man pleasers, there's part of us that should not care what others think of us as long as we know we're pleasing to the Lord. But this verse is one of a couple of verses in Scripture that tell us that we do need to care about how others view our words and our actions. We're going to get there in Romans 14, verse 18. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. There is a sense that we do need to seek not only God's approval, we also need to seek man's approval. 2 Corinthians 8, 21, For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So do right by your enemy. Don't do them wrong. Do, do, do right by them. Do what you know that they know and everyone else knows is right and, and, and good and noble and honorable. Number seven, pursue peace with your enemy. Pursue peace with your enemy. Verse 18, a very important verse. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, we should avoid being provocative or contentious. We need to strive to be gracious and and winsome as possible. And if there is a conflict between us and someone else, we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to, to make things right and to be reconciled with them. Matthew, uh, or Jesus, I should say, in Matthew, gives us some clear instructions as to how to resolve conflict. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So this is in the case where you know that maybe what you've said or done has offended someone else or hurt someone else. And so you want to go to them and make that right. But perhaps you're the one that was hurt by something someone said or did and maybe you're sitting there waiting for them to come to you and to acknowledge that and to make that right. Well, guess what? You still have a responsibility because Matthew 18 says, verse 15, Jesus said, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private and if he listens to you, you've won your brother. So if you've been sinned against, right, you can't just sit and wait for that person to come and acknowledge that and, 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 and seek reconciliation. No, you have a responsibility to go to them. So either way, whether you're the one that offended or you're the offended one, you have a responsibility to go. And the goal, I think God's goal is that you meet halfway. You meet each other coming and going. And that helps, right? Because then you know, hey, both parties are committed to the reconciliation process. And it goes a lot better. And so we need to go to great lengths to build bridges to those who may have hurt us or who have harmed us. We need to let any grudges go and fully forgive them from the heart. And at the end of the day, if things are not resolved, 
It should not be because of us, but in spite of all that we have done to resolve the conflict. Sometimes our best efforts are unreciprocated. And sadly, there's no resolution. There's no reconciliation. And Paul was aware that that sometimes happens, that that sometimes peace is not achievable or possible. Notice he said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes peace is not achievable if both parties aren't willing to pursue peace. It takes two people, right, to reconcile it. And in order to settle a matter, okay, you want to be right, then you have to say this or do this or and it might require us to compromise our integrity in some way for the sake of peace. And so, guess what? We can't go along with that. This is not peace at any cost. But nevertheless, we have been called as Christ followers to be peacemakers. And when we are, Jesus promised that we would be what? Blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In other words, you're a spitting image of your daddy because he's the ultimate peacemaker, is he not? He pursued us and went to great costs, the cost of his own son, Jesus Christ, on the cross to make peace to be, so that we could be reconciled with him. And he calls us to the same and there's plenty of people that have just pretty much given him the Heisman and like, we don't care what you did. We don't care that you want to be at peace with us. We don't care all that you did to accomplish uh, the reconciliation. And so he, he knows what it's like, that, that, that for some people it's not possible, but for others it is. But we can put our heads on the pillow at night, even if there is some unresolved relationship, unreconciled or un- unresolved situation, some unreconciled relationship, and you've done everything that you can to be like God, to be God-like, to be a peacemaker. You can put your head on the pillow at night and sleep like a baby, knowing that God is pleased with you and that his blessing is upon you. Even if that thing just continues to kind of get pushed down the road and, and never gets properly resolved. Number eight, let God avenge your enemy. Let God avenge your enemy. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So again, we need to resist the the natural tendency, the, 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 the sinful desire that, that all of us have to avenge the wrongs done to us. Because when we try to seek revenge on our own, we interfere with God's plans to judge our enemy for what they said or did to us. And what's worse, when we take matters into our own hands, we usurp God's role as the avenger. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, Paul refers to God as the avenger of all things. And here he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, where it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, the perfectly just God promises to right all wrongs, again, either in this life or in the life to come. He's righting all wrongs right now in this life in that he's pouring out his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteous, right? Verse Romans 1.18, and he's giving over the world to immorality and homosexuality, and now we're in the third stage, the insanity, where people are just not even thinking straight, right? That's God's ongoing vengeance, if you will, or retribution for those that reject the knowledge of, of him. Romans chapter 2 talks about the future wrath of God, Chapter 2, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. This is future wrath. This is future judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, Solomon wisely said, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. The writer there quotes the same passage that Paul does, Deuteronomy 32, 35. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You think you could do some, some damage on your enemy? Like that guy in the Count of Monte Cristo, right? Well, guess what? It's way worse in the hands of God. Way scarier to let God deal with them. Now, the point is, vengeance is God's job, not our job. And he does a lot better job of it than we do. And so rather than trying to play God, we need to trust God to deal with our enemy in his way and in his time. And God's ways are infinitely higher than our ways and his timing is often very different than our timing. Another way you could apply this is don't be a vigilante. I don't write this stuff, I just read it. It's there, right? Don't, don't be a vigilante. God is presently avenging people through the government authorities he sovereignly placed over us even if they fail at times. That'd be a good message. What, what do you do, how do you respond when your authority fails? Some of you wives could write that book. Because guess what? Your husband is not living up to what God has called him to be and to, and to do. And your author, you're living under authority that is failing you. You're not being loved. You're not being lived with an understanding way. You're not being cherished. But what does the Bible say? You, what, continue to submit and to honor and to obey and hopefully win them over without a word by your behavior, right? Now, obviously, in the case of some abusive situation, that needs to be addressed, that needs to be dealt with. That needs to be fixed. That needs to be changed. That person needs to be protected. That person needs to be uh, put in a safe place until that authority figure learns how to control themselves. But Paul couldn't have made it any clearer. Romans 13, 4, for it is a minister of God talking about the authority it's a minister of God to you for good for but if you do what is evil be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing for it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil so it's not your job right to to bring the wrath to bring the sword it's the government's job So rather than defending ourselves, we need to place our faith in God to defend us and to vindicate us just like he promised that he would do. Now I imagine there's some questions in your mind right now, especially those of you that are packing this morning. Like, hey, dude, what are you telling me? What about self-defense? Where does that fit into all this? Well, that's a, that's a whole other message, okay? And, and I don't want to get into that right now, but I would just simply say this. There are some verses in the Bible that um, definitely um, allow for self-defense. Like in Exodus chapter 22, for example, it talks about if somebody breaks into your house at night and you harm that person, out of self-defense, you, you're not held accountable. Um, in other words, God intended for us to own property and be able to protect our property and our lives. I think it's interesting in Luke chapter 22, verse 36, Jesus actually told his disciples, hey, if you got a coat, sell it and buy a sword. None, none of you guys have swords, but I, you, you may have sold something so you could buy your whatever your, your piece, right? Um, the point is, Peter got one of those swords. He followed Jesus. He, he, got, he had a sword, and 
when Jesus was arrested in the garden, what he, he whipped it out and started defending right his Lord and his master and the rest of the disciples. And Jesus did tell him, hey, put your sword away. It's like, okay, Jesus, you told me to get a sword and now you won't let me use it. Well, he was using it, right, at the wrong time with the wrong motive and, right? So a lot of it has to do with motive. A lot of it has to do with timing. A lot of it has to do with wisdom, right? And these are all factors we have to take into consideration when it comes to uh, developing a, a biblical understanding of self-defense, which is very legitimate. But I find it interesting, some examples in the Old Old Testament, like David. David, as you know, was being hunted down by Saul. I think Saul was in the category of an enemy, wouldn't you agree? David could say, yeah, Saul's my enemy, or at least Saul has made me his enemy. That was their relationship. And two, two times, David had the opportunity to kill Saul. In other words, he had the drop on Saul. And he could have killed him really easily. One of those times was when Saul had went to use the restroom, which in those days was a cave. Um, and my favorite place in Israel, whenever I've gone to visit Israel, is this place called Engedi, which is this mountainous pass. It goes up through all these caves, and there's caves all over the place, and you get up to the top, there's this waterfall, and you can look out on the Dead Sea. It's a picturesque spot, but there's this cave up there that we actually climbed up to, and I thought, hmm, I wonder if this was the cave where Saul did his business, and David and his men were tucked back in there, and you know the story when uh, you know, David's men were like, David, this is too good to be true. You got him, man. Go kill him. And David went up and he cut the corner of his robe off. That's stealthy. I don't know how that worked out, right? That's getting pretty close to your enemy and he didn't even know you were there. You're cutting the corner of your robe off. And then, of course, um, Saul leaves and David comes out of the mouth of the cave and said, hey, yo, Saul, by the way, I was in here and I could have killed you. Here's, in fact, here's a little piece of your robe and interesting response there. Uh, he did it another time. He was sleeping. Saul was sleeping, and David went into this camp with his, um, one of his mighty men, and Saul's spear was right by his head, stuck in the ground right by his head, and David's mighty men say, David, take him. Pick up his sword and just run him, or pick up his spear and just run him through his own spear. Right to his skull. And David decided just to take some stuff, right, some souvenirs, run off in the next day. Hey, Saul, recognize these things, right? He's like, whoa, you were like right next to me when I was sleeping. That's freaky, that's creepy, right? But he didn't, he didn't kill him when he, when he had every opportunity to. Of course, the story of David and Shimei, I love, love that. We've talked about th that story, um, which is just a real humble story. Um, just a real humble response from David. Let me just read that. Second Samuel chapter, Second Samuel chapter sixteen, verse five. When King David came to Baurim, Baurim, excuse me, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerar. He came out cursing continually as he came. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. I mean, you don't you don't mess with this guy. Has some guts whipping rocks at the king when he's surrounded by his SEAL Team 6, okay? What was he thinking? Thus Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you men of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. Behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. I mean, this is the guy that could have killed Saul the Lord's anointed, right, anytime he wanted to, but he didn't. And now he's getting falsely accused of being a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zerai, said to the king, this is one of the mighty men, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let him go, let me go over now and cut off his head. I mean, those are the kind of friends, you know, that was his secret service, if you will. 
But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zerai? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done this? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with them, and as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at them. David just took it. And so the point here is let God avenge your enemy. Number nine, meet the needs of your enemy. This is interesting. We're not just called to be just passively non-resistant but proactively benevolent. Notice what he says in verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you'll heap burning coals on his head. This is a direct quote from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. And the the point is, or the principle here, is rather than looking for ways to get back at your enemy, look for ways to serve them. You're like, what? I ain't serving that guy. I ain't doing anything nice for that. I may not be mean to him, but I ain't gonna be nice to him. Some of, us, some of us spouses are like that, right? I ain't gonna be mean to her, but I'm not gonna be nice to her. So think of how you can serve them, and God may use your humble acts of service to convict them of their sin and convert them to Christ. The point is when, when, when people treat us like jerks and, and, and we choose to be gracious and generous to them, our unexpected and undeserved acts of kindness will surprise them and make them feel guilty and ashamed and possibly soften their heart and lead them to repentance. Again, the words of Paul to Timothy are so helpful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That little phrase, um, you'll heat burning coals on his head, in ancient Egypt, it was customary that a, a penitent person would carry a tray of burning coals on his head to symbolize his repentance. Back to David's merciful treatment of his enemy Saul. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, this is after the cave incident and David said hey just by the way by the way I I I spared your life first Samuel 24 verse 16 when David had finished speaking these words to Saul Saul said is this your voice my son David already see a little bit of heart change there then Saul lifted up his voice and wept And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me, that the Lord delivered me into your hand, yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done. Sadly, he never received the grace of God, it seems. You say, man, that's like really hard to get my mind around. How do I do that? Well, it might help if you just remember the unexpected and undeserved love that God showed you when you were his enemy. Romans chapter five. God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved 
by his life. Lastly, number 10, do good to your enemy. Do good to your enemy. Notice, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When someone is evil towards us, it's very tempting to respond to them in like manner. For instance, if your spouse is discontent and complaining and you get frustrated and sarcastic with them in response, guess what? You have been overcome by their evil. Or if your kids are disobeying or disrespecting you and you get angry and you discipline them in anger, guess what? You have been overcome by your kids' evil. Or if your boss attacks you and lays into you and you respond by telling him off, that means you were overcome by his evil. Christians are called to a much higher and, and, and harder standard. In Luke chapter 6, going back to that passage about our enemies and how Christ expected us to respond. This is Luke 6, 29. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. By the way, that verse was a verse we always used to share with our children when they were fighting over toys. That'll preach in the playroom. Give to everyone who asks of you and whoever takes away what is yours, don't demand it back. Whoever thought that would apply to the nursery, right? Treat others the same way you want to be treated. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Either, hey, listen, unbelievers do that. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. No big deal. That's what unbelievers do. That's easy to do. You can do that and not be saved. But you, on the other hand, as a follower of me, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. God had mercy on us didn't give us what we deserve and for that reason we should have mercy on our enemies and not give them what they deserve and in so doing our enemies may be turned into friends but more importantly they may turn into followers of Christ I'll never forget reading this helpful little book called Agape Leadership Lessons in Spiritual Leadership from the Life of R.C. Chapman he was a pastor back in um, I think the 17, uh, well, I guess it was uh, 17, 1800s, and uh, Spurgeon said that he was the saintliest man he ever knew. I'm like, whoa, okay, I want to learn from this guy if he's the saintliest man Spurgeon ever knew. And in this chapter about forgiving and blessing others, um, the authors tell a story about how not, not everybody liked R.C. Chapman. In fact, there was one person, a grocer in Barnstaple, England, here we're talking about, became so upset at Chapman's open-air preaching that he spit on him. And for a number of years, the grocer continued to attack and castigate Chapman, yet Chapman continued on in his ministry, and when the opportunity presented itself, reached out to bless the grocer. The opportunity arose when one of Chapman's wealthy relations, uh, relatives visited him. The visit was more than just a social call. The relative wanted to try to understand what Chapman was doing. When he arrived at the house by horse-drawn cab, he couldn't believe that the well-bred Chapman lived in such a modest home in an impoverished neighborhood. Yet Chapman warmly invited him into his clean, simple home. They talked. Chapman explained what it meant to live in dependence on the Lord and shared how the Lord always met his needs. As the relative was leaving, he asked if he could buy groceries for Chapman, who gladly agreed, but Chapman insisted that the groceries be purchased at you guessed it, right? The grocer that had spit on him and made his life so miserable. Ignorant of previous interactions between the grocer and Chapman, the relative went where he had been directed. He selected and paid for a large amount of food and then told the grocer to deliver it to R.C. Chapman. 
The stunned grocer told the visitor that he must have come to the wrong shop, but the visitor explained that Chapman had sent him specifically to that shop. Soon the grocer arrived at Chapman's house where he broke down in tears and asked for forgiveness, and that very day, the grocer yielded his life to Christ. You never know how the Lord's going to use our countercultural, supernatural reaction and interaction with our enemies. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this very timely, very practical text. So Lord, help us to uh, diligently seek to apply it in our lives as we are trying to navigate some very challenging waters in our, in our culture, in our society, in our country right now. And so, Lord, help us to be like Jesus. Uh, that's the best thing we can do. And uh, to proclaim him to others and just stick with the gospel and not get it off into the weeds, into the politics and, and, and all the other things, but just to preach the gospel. And uh, Lord, that our lives would be used by you to win many to Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, more so, I wish I could have shared with you, but um, anyway, before you leave, we got to do one more thing. And uh, we have the privilege this morning of welcoming some new members uh, into our church. And uh, I joked with this class that was, uh, we started before the whole COVID thing started and then, and, and, and the, and the, you know, we had to cancel the last class and so they've been stuck in membership purgatory for the last, you know, two months or so, um, suffering extra for their sins, you know, um, so I'm just kidding. Um, but they've been in kind of in limbo here and so we finally finished up the class for those of them that were available. So we've got a batch this morning and uh, probably another batch later uh, in the summer when the others are available. And so um, I want to invite up the Breeze family. So uh, Ryan and Janet and your family, your kids, come on up here, please. And also the Frost family, Matthias and Madeline, and they've got little Elliot there as well. And Sierra Steyer, where are you at, Sarah? Come on up here. And this is, this is kind of half the class um, that we were having. And so um, anyway, as soon as they all get up here, we're going to, uh, go through our little membership affirmation and all of these folks have made professions of faith in Christ and uh, are being led by God to unite with us here at Lakeside and so I want to give them an opportunity to uh, answer some questions um, to express their commitment to the Lord in our church. So you guys can turn and face me and uh, I'm going to ask you these questions and you can respond by saying we will. As a member of Lakeside Bible Church, Will you protect the unity of this church by acting in love toward our other, other members by refusing to gossip and by following the leadership? Will you share the responsibility of this church by praying for its spiritual growth, by inviting the unsaved to attend, and by warmly welcoming those who visit? Okay. Will you serve the ministry of this church by discovering your gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve by the pastor's of the church, by attending faithfully, giving regularly, and by living a godly life? We will, all right. Well, I want to pray for you guys, um, but before I do, I mentioned um, to you uh, a couple weeks ago when we said uh, farewell to the Hunter family um, that uh, this, you know, church is an interesting dynamic. People are always coming and going, right? We know that to be true, and it seems like this uh, uh, hiatus from church, the COVID thing, has really kind of upset the all apple cart and has given people a pause and reason to make decisions and changes and where they attend church. We're, we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of new faces, people we've never seen before uh, joining us here at Lakeside, which is a blessing. And we've also had a, a few families decide that, hey, this is a good time to, to maybe go look for another church. And one of those families is the Bundys. Um, you guys know Brad and Angela, dear, dear couple uh, who have been nothing but a blessing and served us so well. Uh, after some uh, very gracious, amicable conversations with Brad and just about some of the things that we believe and teach the church, just felt like, you know what, it's, it might be better for us just to find another church. And, and so we've uh, encouraged them to do that. And uh, thankfully, we're still gonna have a, the privilege of ministering to their boys. Uh, they've got a great relationship with Kyle and uh, it's uh, um, Richard's senior year and he wants to be here at Lakeside. So anyway, we'll see them around, of course, but 
we just didn't want to let them get away without acknowledging uh, them. And uh, what a blessing they've been to our body. And um, there's going to be a big hole without them here. But uh, if you know them, uh, you may have already been aware of that. But just wanted to, it's always hard when somebody just, you don't see somebody and you're like, hey, what happened to them? And we just wanted to be up front. But more, more than anything, we wanted to honor the Bundys because, uh, like I said, they've, they've served us so well. And uh, we love them very dear to our hearts. And uh, they've been, like I said, very gracious, very amicable, and want to maintain a friendship and a relationship with us. So anyway, the comings and goings, right, of God's people. And uh, we're just one of many churches. And, uh, and so we are, are, are blessed to be able to have people for as long as the Lord brings them to us. And hopefully we serve them well and, and uh, can send them on their way uh, better off than they were when they arrived. So anyway, let's pray for these folks that are joining today and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll depart. Father, thank you uh, just that you are sovereign over all things, um, even the comings and goings of, of every local church um, all over the world. And Lord, we're just uh, privileged to be able to serve you and, and serve the body of Christ worldwide. And so, Lord, thank you for these dear folks uh, who are joining today. Pray that you would help us to do a good job uh, assimilating them into the life of this church and uh, that they would find a, a place to connect, a, a small group and, and a ministry to serve in and that we would love on them well and that we would be blessed by them and the gifts that they bring to build us up and to make us better and more like Jesus. And we pray for the Bundys as they transition and look for a new church, Lord, that you would uh, grant them wisdom and direction and that uh, we would be able to honor you and honor them in just the way we think and talk and interact with them in the future. And so uh, we just thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy in our lives. Pray that you'd bless the rest of our day and uh, the rest of our week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.